0: And welcome to another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great. I'm Son and Coming up on the show, we're going to talk, uh, try to talk about a couple different things. One of the things I'd like to get to is talking about this archaic education system that currently exists across the country and how it is failing students. New numbers have come out regarding I guess the performance, academic performance of students across the country, get to that. Also, if time permits, I've been posting some old baseball videos on social media, clips from the 80s, 90s, even earlier, the 50s, 60s, uh, Babe Ruth, Some of the the great moments in Major League Baseball history, and it's gone over pretty well. It's been fun to reminisce about some of the greatness that took place in Major League Baseball over the years. And so, if we get an opportunity, I will let you know what that's about. But more importantly, who I think is the greatest baseball player of all time. So stay tuned for that. But what I want to start out talking about is wasted talent. Wasted opportunity, wasted potential, and the loss of that waste, the loss on others that might have benefited from the talent that you possess, I possess, maybe others possess, that talent that if we don't use it, can't impact, can't help, can't improve the lives of others, and so that's what I want to start out talking about on the program. And I bring it up because I was listening to uh, Janis Joplin recently. There's a couple of her songs that I really do enjoy. In fact, they're, uh, actually, I didn't really realize it. I knew it, but I never really thought about it until I was doing some research for the show that uh, Peace of My Heart and uh, me and Bobby McGee, two of her more famous songs, were actually cover tunes. I didn't realize that, or I had forgotten about that, I guess. And then when you take a look at her career in general, it was really short-lived. I mean, she is in the, uh, the Hall of Fame. But her career only lasted, if you want to stretch it out, two years. And here's how it went. So obviously in the early 60s, she started to get into the music scene. And, and as all musicians do, you know, they bounce around from group to group before they really get established. I mean, you take a look at one of the uh, more prominent industry kind of styles was the, what they call the hair bands, the metal bands from the 1980s. You look at the history of those groups, and you see a lot of musicians that were in different bands before they came together and formed what became their hit band. I mean, you think of Guns N' Roses was a combination of Axl Rose and Tracy Guns. And then Tracy Guns went off and did L.A. Guns and Guns N' Roses stuck with uh, Axl Rose. And you look at Slash and the bands he performed with and, and uh, some of the others before they came together and how they came together. And so it's pretty fascinating when you get, to get into the history of it all. But with Janis Joplin, she started out in the early 60s, you know, trying to find her, her place in this world, right? So eventually, she hooks up with the, uh, the band, I guess you can call it the band, the Big Brother and the Holding Company, and they start their musical journey. 1967. Okay, it's uh, June 1967, and they go to the Monterey Pop Festival in Monterey, California. And they perform. They perform on Saturday of the Monterey Pop Festival. And then again, they perform on Sunday. And Sunday, I guess, is really where it was filmed. And that's really where she took off. As did the band, but mainly Jonas Joplin. She hit the scene, was a huge success. Instant fame. Nobody really heard about her. I mean, she's been performing kind of like you know all musicians do. You play here, you play there. People kind of get to know you. But it wasn't until she hit the Monterey Pop Festival that she exploded onto the scene. So then... She records two albums with Big Brother and the Holding Company. But really, after that performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, it's pretty evident that she was going to be solo. And so she does. After a couple albums, she breaks off with the band, goes solo, kind of forms her own new band, her backing band, the Full Tilt Boogie. And then, August 1969, she takes the stage at Woodstock in a performance, in a highly anticipated performance. But again, you had the Monterey Pop Festival where she had national exposure and became a huge success. Now remember, there's no social media, there's no cable TV, there's no MTV. Not seeing music videos played anywhere. You're probably reading about her in Rolling Stone magazine and maybe some other publications. So you're getting very limited access to Janis Joplin, unless you maybe go to a show. But on the national stage, national audience, things like that, they are very limited, unlike today. So, 1967, Monterey Pop Festival, huge success. By August 1969, Woodstock, she shows up, and in the end, after she gets done singing, the response was, it was horrible. She performed miserably. In fact, it was rumored that she did not even want to sign a waiver that would allow for her performances at Woodstock to be used outside of Woodstock. Like, she didn't want it out there. It was that bad. Now, some people blamed the, the fact that her performance was delayed 10 hours because of contractual issues and other things, but really when it came down to it during that two-year span from the Monterey Pop Festival, the Woodstock, she became a huge heroin addict. And she was shooting heroin at Woodstock. People witnessed it. And then on top of it, a year later, in October of 1970, she dies of an overdose. So she hits the stage in 1967 at the Monterey Pop Festival, becomes a huge success. Three years later, she is no longer with us. And you think about all the music that could have come from Janis Joplin had she not had this demon chasing her. She couldn't get over it. Obviously, the people around her didn't help. She had this uh, friend-slash-lover, this gal that was a drug addict as well, that contributed to it. And there was, she was hanging out with people in Hollywood. I think she was dating at one time a heroin a drug dealer. So, again, the influences around her were all negative that were going to destroy her, and it ultimately did. She died October 4th, 1970, and at the time somewhere in there, I guess someone calculated that she was doing about $200 a day worth of heroin, which might be $1,300. According to a modern day monies, you know, $1,300 or more. So she was doing a lot of heroin all in all. She recorded four albums, Pearl, which was an album that was released after she had died, went on to be a number one hit. Um, Again, like I mentioned, the Hall of Fame. A lot of her more popular, well-known songs were cover tunes, like I mentioned, Peace of My Heart and Me and Bobby McGee. She does have some original music that did well. But then you take a look at even a broader scope. I mean, Jimi Hendrix, he died 16 days before Jonas Joplin. And then a month earlier, Alan Houston, I'm, I'm sorry, Alan Wilson of Canned Heat, died of a drug overdose, so they think. But so you had Jimi Hendrix, Alan Wilson, and Janis Joplin, who all performed at both the Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock, and now they're dead. So within a three-year span, you have all this musical talent gone. And then, of course, you can throw in Jim Morrison of The Doors, Brian Jones, who's the founding member of the Rolling Stones, gave Rolling Stones their name, in fact. All of them dying between 69 and 71. A lot of musical talent. Thus, it became the 27 Club. You die at the age of 27. Maybe Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain, more noticeable. Uh, Someone mentioned that uh, Elvis Presley's was a grandson. Died at the age of 27 here not too long ago. But a lot of it has to do with, with drugs. And you think about this. The Monterey Pop Festival was June 16th to the 18th, 1967. Woodstock, like I mentioned, two years later, August 15th to the 18th in 1969. In that two-year span, Janis Joplin went from, musically, musically she went from a breakout sensation to a lost cause. And then a year later she was dead. Lost her soul to drugs, depression, loneliness. All that would eat her up. And it would override her passion for music, for performing, for being successful. Now imagine if she did not have those influences and she was able to focus on music. She was able to focus on her creativity, her songwriting, her performance. Imagine what she could have contributed. Imagine the amount of music we might be enjoying today. Jimi Hendrix could say the same thing. Although I think Jimi Hendrix had a longer career, you think about you know other musicians that have come and gone. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is I mentioned the hair bands of the nineteen eighties on the Sunset Strip, but Motley Crue and their notorious drug use. And uh, Nikki Six, the, the guitar player Nikki Six, and the songwriter, he wrote songs for the group. He was high on heroin, OD'd, came back. But his early, most of all his work prior to Dr. Feelgood's album was drug-induced lyrics. And then he got clean and clear and he wrote Dr. Feelgood that album and it became a huge success. And he made the statement that he wishes he would have been clean and clear in the early days because he could only imagine the type of music he would have written back then. So even for somebody like him. Hardcore drug user, he realized the impact he could have had and the music he could have written if he had stayed sober. And so we think about all the other things. How much has this world lost because people have been influenced negatively and thus it's impacted their work? And it could be music, it could be business, it could be science, It could be a number of things. But because we were sidetracked, we weren't able to, one, accomplish those things, but, two, as a world, enjoy those things that could have been created or the byproduct of a person's life had they been able to achieve their goals. And you think about us. I mean, lowly people, right? We're not big musicians. We're not on the world stage. We're not performing at festivals. But what are we doing? Are we actually going after and achieving the goals that we have set for ourselves? Are we actually going after some of those things? Or are we allowing other influences? Are we living life to the fullest? Or are we giving way to those things that come our way, that knock us off our journey? Are we giving it our all? Or are we wasting our talents away? on the demons that are chasing us. What are you? What am I? What are we denying this world that we could give them, but we're not because we're being distracted by other things? We're squandering our talents away on other things, focusing on other things that may turn out to be our demise. For musicians like Janis Joplin, it was their drug addiction. Maybe for other bands, it was their ego, their narcissism that fights, you know, creative differences, and so they break up, and then eventually they get back together because they realize that as a group, as a whole, they're better off than independence. Others break off from a group and they do well as a solo act, or maybe they go form a new band. But jealousy, not wanting to get along wanting to take the credit, things like that can really impact the kind of work that we can put out there. And these are some of the things, and think about it, jealousy, narcissism, an ego, not wanting to work with somebody, wanting to take all the credit, not wanting to share ideas. You put all these things together, and are these the things that are keeping us from contributing mildly to this world? Or are we? contributing mightily to this world, to the people around us, whether it be the small things in our community, whether it be the small things in our neighborhoods, maybe in our cities, our churches, our schools. I mean, you think about the school system these days. I mean, there's a lot of issues going on with schools. Just take a look at, I guess, any number of school districts, but let's start off with just, in general, education. It's one of those areas that, falls into our, seven, our 27 Club of Society, if you think about it. You know, the 27 Club was a group of people. It started out with these musicians, Jonas Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. They died at the age of 27, and it became kind of like this cult thing that if you die at the age of 27 as a musician or actor or something like that, then it was like that was your lot in life. That was your destiny. Your destiny was to die at 27. Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain. Now, obviously, Kurt Cobain, you know, took his own life. Some others have taken their own lives. Others have overdosed. There's been some other, but there's a lot of people. You can look it up. So when we talk about the 27 Club of Society, are we actually getting to that point where we're killing ourselves off because the demons that are chasing us are getting to us? We no longer have the fight, so we give up, take our own lives. We give up and we give in to a $200 day heroin addiction to our society. And so you have teachers in the education system that started out with that fire in them to want to change the world, to influence young people, to educate. But now you've got the education system no longer focusing on educating and making children better. But now we've got a big fight across the country when it comes to education, when it comes to justice, social justice issues, woke ideology you know, children's have, children have basically become pawns in a political game, really. If you think about it, look at all the news that's happened over the last few years. There's no academic achievement. In fact, academic achievement has been hidden. Virginia not granting AP scores and other accolades to students because they didn't want to isolate and make the not-so-smart people feel bad. So they were withholding academic achievements from other students that were actually doing well. And perhaps keeping them from going to college and maybe getting something greater in college because of their academic achievements in high school. People were withholding those things, keeping our kids back because of a woke ideology. 27 Club of Society, 27 Club of Education. Educators are supposed to help promote kids and educate them, but no, now we're keeping accolades back because they're a pawn in a political game. Education is dying. A report, February twenty third, twenty twenty three, in fifty five Chicago schools, not one student met grade level expectations in math or reading for the year twenty one twenty two. This is according to Wirepoints report. Out of the six hundred and forty nine Chicago public schools, twenty two schools have zero students who met grade level expectations in reading, and In math, it was 33 schools. So more schools had students with no achievements or proficiency in math. And in 22 schools, no achievement or proficiency in reading. People can't read. Obviously, then they can't write. They don't know math. Now, according to the report, some people might point to covid but the report goes on to rebunk that and says that in 2019, scores were only slightly better. So pre-pandemic, scores were only slightly better. So we've got a downward trend in education. Statewide, in Illinois, 30 schools, no student read at grade level. In 930 schools in Illinois, only one in 10 students met math grade level expectations. So we take all 930 schools in Illinois and only 1 in 10 met grade-level math expectations. And reading, it's worse. How about Baltimore, Maryland? Same time frame. 23 city schools have zero students testing proficient in math in 2022. Out of 150 public schools, 23 schools had zero students meet grade-level expectations for math. Or how about this? If you really want to put it into numbers that you can understand and really see where we're at when it comes to the academic decline, only 7% of 3rd through 8th graders in Baltimore public schools met grade-level expectations in math in 2022. This according to the Maryland State Department of Education. 93% failing. One Baltimore resident commented, it sounds like these schools now have turned into essentially babysitters with no accountability. And when you think about Chicago and you think about Baltimore, one thing that does come to mind is the people who live there. Inner city, typically minorities, black, Latinos, And these are the schools that aren't educating, reading, and writing below grade level, if at all, any proficiency, but definitely not at grade level. So let's step outside of that for a moment. What about a place like Nebraska? Omaha, Nebraska. Students, only 28% were found to be proficient in English and language arts. 20% proficient in math. Again, you're talking about inner city schools. And again, probably the socioeconomics low. A lot of blacks, Latinos. But what about the whole state? Nebraska is in the center of the country. Omaha is considered the center of the country. Maybe not exactly geographically. But as far as commerce, travel, and all that stuff, as a big city. It's pretty much in the center. And what about the state of Nebraska? Again, pretty much in the center. Because if you really want the geographical center of the country, you would go to McCook, Nebraska, out west in the western part of Nebraska. Omaha's in the east, for those that don't know maps. And then you drop straight down from McCook a little bit into Kansas, and there's the geographical center. Okay. So Nebraska is pretty much in the center, is my point. In the whole state, 48% of students are proficient in English and language arts, 46% in math. So Nebraska has less than half the students proficient in math and reading. So you look at who's to blame. Well, is it really fair to, to blame somebody? Is it really fair to point fingers? Or should we just solve the problem? Well, how about we just kind of solve the problem? Forget about what's who's at fault. Let's find out what the problem is, and let's try to fix it. So Nebraska, what they decide to do in their state legislature, and by the way, Nebraska is one of only two states, North Dakota being the other one, that does not have school choice, any type of school choice. You go to the school that you go to. So Nebraska decided to put forth legislation for school choice. Everybody else is doing it. Makes sense. Obviously, we know the numbers, the mathematical numbers and the reading language arts numbers, very low, very uneducated people out there. So here's the headline, Lincoln, Nebraska, Lincoln, the state capitol. Not in Nebraska, public school advocates rally against opportunity scholarship bill. So there's a bill apparently floating in the state of Nebraska that would allow tax credits or some financial assistance through scholarships, which would allow students to attend private schools. Now you can debate whether public schools or private schools are better. I think each have their strengths and each have their weaknesses. But when you're dealing with schools that might not be educating, and the numbers prove it, then maybe you need to think about allowing students to choose to go to another school if they so desire. If it be a private school, why not? Why not let them go? But no, we can't. So this school choice bill, and again, Nebraska North Dakota, only, the only Two states left that have no type of school choice. So if you've got organizations that are giving out scholarships to students to go to private schools because they can't afford it, and you donate to those organizations, you get a tax credit. And then if you meet some criteria, and again, there's some priorities that we'll get to, like foster care, uh, people based on income, bullying, military status, okay, things like that, that is... Who will get first priority when it comes to this? Typically, you think of foster care, you think of bowling, you think of low-income, inner cities, inner cities, black Latinos. This would help them rise up out of poverty, rise up out of their circumstances, and get them into a better circumstance, a better school, better education. Education gets them out of that cycle of poverty that perhaps that family has been dealing with. Puts them on a better path. We all want that, don't we? Isn't that why educators go into education, is to try to teach students to get better so that they can have a better life for them? Because we know education opens up doors and opportunities. And we push upon them state testings and other assessments and try to get them to learn. And we provide resources, whether it be special education resources or maybe just if you're not in special education, you're just kind of in general education, but you're a little bit behind, tutors and things like that, well, wouldn't this be a great idea to try to help? But no. Opponents of the bill say money will be diverted from public schools. And so, of course, the state teachers' union is against the bill because once you start sending students to private schools, Unions aren't in private schools. They lose their power. They lose their money. They are no longer relevant, and they lose their importance. Opponents of the bill say that if this bill does pass, I guess time will tell. They've tried it a few other times, and it's failed, according to uh, news reports. But if this bill passes, they will continue to fight and bring it to the people for a vote. Why are they so adamant? Why are teachers' unions so adamant? on fighting this, on not allowing for students to get a better education. And again, you got to think about this. Most of the students come from inner cities. Usually they're black and Latino. And so you've got a bunch of white, liberal-minded, power-hungry people keeping the minority communities trapped in the cycle of failure. I mean, that's what it is. Because you take a look at these union leaders... And at least from what I can tell in the state of Nebraska, the head of the state teachers union is white. She's spoken out against it. Some of the politicians that are speaking out against it are white. And we've got an issue. How can we not provide an education for people that could really use it? It's because they lose their power. They lose their money. The National Education Association, another liberal teacher union on the national level, and a lobbying group is against this bill. So you know if the liberal left is against it, it's probably a good thing, probably something that should go through. Why would you not want to allow students an opportunity to get a better education, especially if it's helping inner-city schools, inner-city students? So then you've got people that have been in the education business for a long time, I guess if you did want to point fingers, you could point at them for causing the problem because they've been a part of it, kind of like Congress. If I can use an example, you've got Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell. You've got all these politicians that have been there for 30, 40 years, and they still today bitch and moan at each other because something isn't done, like maybe immigration or whatever longstanding crisis this country has, is facing. Well, you've been in politics, you've been in office for 30, 40 years. Don't look at me to fix the problem. I mean, I'll fix it, but don't look at me as the source of the problem or blame me. You've been in control for years. Take a look at gun control. All of a sudden, the Democrats are blaming the Republicans about gun control. Was it not just too long ago that the Democrats had the White House, the Senate, and Congress? The House of Representatives, they had the whole entire government. They did nothing. And now they're out of power on a complete level. And so now they bitch and moan about the other side. And that's what it is because they don't care about you. They only care about their power. They only care about their money. And they only care about their lust of self. That narcissistic diet that they need to feed themselves, to gain more power. Because that's all they're going to lose. If you start sending kids to private schools, you're going to start to lose power. Because you're not allowed in public schools. I mean, private schools, because private schools can keep you out. That's why California is so against charter schools, trying to push back a lot on charter schools, because you don't have the power over charter schools. Charter schools can do their own thing, in essence, keep the unions out and keep all that other stuff out. And so that's where we've fallen into the so called 27 Club of Education. We're dying. And, of course, we're well beyond 27 years, but education is dying. Students are failing all over the country. And when elective legislators want to make a change, the very entity that is failing the students is the one that's rising up against it. The union steps up. They fight it because, again, they're going to lose their power, their money, their lust for self, that narcissism. And again, look at the the broader problem. Teachers are fleeing. We've talked about it on the show before. We played clips on the the show before. Teachers are fleeing. No amount of money is keeping these teachers because you're dealing with bad behavior in students. You're dealing with no help from districts. You're dealing with overworked. Shorting uh, staff shortages. So a short... A shortening of workers is making those that are working having to work longer. And the pay isn't worth it. People are turning down money to go anyplace else. And, in fact, a lot of retiring-type teachers are telling younger people, don't go into teaching. It's not worth it. A lot of burnout. A lot of extra hours. A lot of stuff you have to deal with that you don't expect. In fact, teachers are fleeing so quickly, they're leaving faster than people leaving California, New York, and Illinois. I mean, they are leaving, and there's going to be this huge void that's already being created, but there's a huge void, because nobody wants to deal with it. You've got people going into the financial sector, maybe private business, doing all these other things, and they're so much happier because they've got regular hours, they're not dealing with bitchy parents. They're not dealing with failing students that just don't care, nor do they want to cooperate, nor do they want to follow the rules, but they want to do their own thing. They're not fighting against technology and social media, cell phones, iPads. They're not dealing with a shortage of personnel to help out, support staff, with fat cats sitting down at the district making a boatload of money, not in the classroom, but yet trying to dictate what students and teachers should do in the classroom when they're not in the classroom, dealing with behavior issues with no consequences whatsoever. It goes on and on and on. Now, again, there are a lot of great teachers out there doing great things, a lot of great school districts doing great things. Nobody's perfect, but there are some good being done. Okay? Not one size fits all problem. Not one size fits all solution. There are some good people doing some good things out there. But when we look at the numbers, Baltimore, Chicago, And then we spread it over to Omaha and you can look at any other city. I'm sure LA unified same way. And you're sitting there and you're looking at these things. It's like, what can be done? And so you come up with an idea like school choice and it gets shot down. And that's just where we're at. So what can be done? Well, I think personally that the crisis is going to get worse And these same leaders that are the root cause of the problem, and maybe it's intentional, maybe it's unintentional, maybe they didn't realize and they didn't see this coming. But again, they are the leader and the buck stops with them. But they're not solving anything. And we're watching the educational Titanic sink deeper and deeper into the educational abyss. Problems have started and grown under the same educational system for years. I think back when I was in school, classroom, desk, Textbook, lecture, read, test. It's kind of the same thing still going on. Sure, in some classrooms you walk into, maybe the desks have been replaced with tables. Maybe it's more kid-friendly or student-friendly environments, not so rigid. But we're still doing the same thing. Not much has changed. And in fact, I think standards have laxed. We're trying to teach Higher levels in math and reading at younger ages. Maybe that's part of the reason why they're not proficient. Maybe we need to reevaluate the curriculum. What's, what are we teaching and when are we teaching it? But I think it needs to be more revolutionary than that. I think it needs to go back to just overhauling the whole system altogether. I mean, we've got the technology for it. We've got definitely the resources in this day and age. We've got young teachers that are willing to commit to teaching with the enthusiasm, but yet we handcuff them, restrain them from doing creative things. I mean, you think about, okay, one of the things that I had to learn, and this is where change comes in, right? Change can be good. So when I was growing up in school, there was no talking absolutely whatsoever in class, in elementary school. There was no talking. You cannot talk to your neighbor. Big time trouble. Well, as you start to learn about students, you learn at certain ages, students, especially in younger elementary, okay, there is a time and a place where it should be necessary for students to talk to each other, even in class, because that's a part of developmental growth. So anytime I go into a, elementary school classroom, I'm like, be quiet, no talking whatsoever. And I get frustrated because they would sit there and talk. So I had to learn that this is a part of developmental growth. You have to allow them time and space to talk. Now, you should also train them so that when it's time to not talk, they be quiet and there's consequences for that. But you do have to allow So there's a give and take. So I think back to my education and a lot of, and especially in younger elementary school, when people get in trouble for talking, Were they bad kids? No. I've learned in hindsight that they're just doing what comes natural. The natural development of a child is talking, communicating. That's, you have art, or maybe you have other projects where they can work together and talk. So that's what I'm talking about. You got to relearn the system. Okay. And so you've got an education system that needs to be changed because I think the way we do things now is obsolete. We need to be revolutionary in the way we do these things. Look at other things. are there interactive classrooms where well, they can go from station to station to station, for example, and learning some things. Do we really need textbooks anymore? I mean, there's this big fight over textbooks. Do we really need to have textbook curriculum? That's something to look at. I'm not saying I have all the solutions, but something to look at. And what are we teaching? I mean, we're in school, 177, 180, whatever it is, days a year. Do we need to be in school that long? I mean, take a look at the school day. Maybe we need to revamp the school day. You know, you have school days where you start off and there's like, there's recesses, there's PE, there's lunchtime, there's break time. There's um, a lot of downtime where kids are just kind of doing whatever because maybe student uh, teachers are working with students individually, group work, but there's a lot of downtime, a lot of wasted time. Maybe we need to come up with a school day that looks different that's broken down differently. Maybe instead of grade levels, okay, you're in first grade, second grade, third grade, if we're doing all this testing, maybe we look at putting people in groups that, base, that are based on their ability to learn, where they are in these testing things. If you're, at a, if you're in a fourth grade and you're in a second grade reading level, you're a second grader, but maybe in a third grade reading level, Maybe you start grouping people according to reading levels. Why do we have to have first grade, second grade, third grade in these things, these curriculums? Why not take a look at changing things around? Why not focusing on more of the math and reading, maybe science? History, well, that's where we get into a lot of problems, and that's where this woke ideology and changing history and things come from. But maybe it's something to think about. where we look at changing some of these things. Maybe we need to look at education at the high school level, maybe even middle school, and start preparing people for a career in what was called the blue-collar jobs, mechanic, construction, plumbing, maybe even computer technology. I remember there was a school, the um, Los Angeles the Catholic Archdiocese had a school, and I think it was a part of all their school systems at one time. But I believe it was Don Bosco was the last one, and I went there one summer because I was taking a uh, a class for a master's program, and it was a remote class. It was on location because the school, the college itself, was in Irvine, but there was a group of people that were not in Irvine, and Irvine from Los Angeles is a bit of a drive, and in L.A. Orange County traffic, it could take days to get there. So they created this classroom, this cohort, as they call it, on the campus of Don Bosco. So I got to talk to the principal and got to get a tour of the, the school. And at one time, they had two wings. One wing was academics, where it was designed for kids that wanted to go to college. The other wing was designed for kids that weren't going to go to college. And again, this is not necessarily inner city, but it was in a heavily Hispanic part of town. Okay. So they would do their core requirements to graduate, but instead of taking AP courses, they would go and learn mechanics. There was a construction where they'd actually build this mini house. It was a part of their semester of instruction in, in uh, construction. I think there was some culinary arts types of things. Don't want to call it home ec, but it's culinary arts. And so there was a few options and I forget what the others were, but this whole wing had become obsolete. Why? Because the state of California came in and said that you have to push everybody to college. This has to go away with, otherwise you lose accreditation. Threaten them with accreditation. So this high school from the Catholic Archdiocese that was serving both types of students, one that were going to be more job career-minded versus educational career-minded, and they're putting people out there. And he told me that once they made that shift, lost a lot of students. People just stopped going to school. Because there's no longer a drive for them because they did not want this, nor did they maybe understand it. I mean, who really does understand calculus and trigonometry? A few of you maybe. People barely understand fractions. The irony, though, when you were building a house, you were learning measurements. You are learning mathematics. Geometry. When you're doing mechanics, you're learning some of those same things. The application was different, and so California Department of Education came in, shut it all down, and they lost it. But maybe it's time to get back to that. Maybe it's time to start looking at the revamping of reading skills and math skills and science, more interactive, bring it outside businesses. I mean, you think about teaming up with zoos. Think about teaming up with other entities in the community that might be able to come in. I remember my senior year, we had to do economics. Uh, I think the principal was the economics teacher officially, but some lady from like J.P. Morgan or whatever financial institution came in and basically taught us the class, taught us about stock trading and things like that, the uh, the economics of it. Why not bring in professionals that might be able to help out? Again, creating the blue-collar sector jobs, allowing that kind of two-pathway system might be important. But it's going to take radical change. But when you have radical change, what's going to happen? You're going to have people push back. You got people fight. You're going to have the liberal unions pushing back because they're going to lose power, lose money. Their narcissistic diet isn't going to be fed. Their lust for self isn't going to be met. We're not going to give in to them. And once they lose that power, then what are they going to do? They say it's worse. To have had power and lost it. Actually I think the saying goes, It's better to have is it better to have loved and lost than never to loved at all? Is it better to not have power than to have had power and lost it? Money, same thing. Is it better to have not had money or to have money and lost it? Once you gain something, you don't want to lose it. And we see a lot of politicians losing and so they get nasty. Big fights, and that's where we're in this country. A great divide. And then ultimately, you know, when you think about it, if you want to kind of bring this full circle, not to belabor the point, but I think it is important because you've got some of these same leaders that are rallying against school choice, rallying against improvement for students, for change, for positive change. They do it because they say they want what's best for the student. But yet these same people are okay with abortion, child mutilation in the name of gender ideology, and keeping it away from parents on top of it too, hiding it from parents. These are the same people that want CRT. They think parents were domestic terrorists, wanted the National Guard to show up at school board meetings and arrest them. The same people that are teaching sexualized ideology to students, including books with questionable material in it. Again, in Virginia, you had people, school districts, keeping academic accomplishments away from students because it wasn't fair to the dumb students or the people that just didn't care. So, their AP scores and other academic achievements were being held back, which was prohibiting them from getting into maybe a better college. It goes full circle. And you take a look at these people that are saying, I want what's best for the students, but yet their actions are counter to what they're saying. And so, you really know, in fact, if you really want to know who has the best interest, and students, or anybody else for that matter, are people that are going to put other people's interests first, even though it might hurt their interests. I mean, could you imagine giving kids from the inner city scholarships? So they go to better schools because the schools in their area aren't serving them. And let's just face it there are a lot of people that are close to retirement. They've put in their career, but they're not quite ready to retire. They've got to get those few extra years. They're done. They just don't want, I know some teachers that are like that. They're done, but they don't have the energy to put in, and so they're just buying their time, and they're doing whatever they have to just survive and get by, and they don't care. They're just going to serve their time. Why not check retirement? Why not revamp the retirement system? How effective is a teacher who's looking to try to get to 30 years, sitting at year 28, and they're done? They just have no interest whatsoever, but they can't retire because they need two more years. How effective are they going to be at teaching? Probably not very much. And so then again, when it comes down to it, how can we bring out our inner greatness? Because after all, I say it and I play it time and time again, we have greatness within us. You have greatness within you. You have the ability to do more than you can ever begin to imagine. See, I believe that anybody through observation and practice can perform at the level of excellence. But when you're pursuing your greatness, this is worth writing down, you don't know what your limits are and you act like you don't have any. So I say to you, you have something special. You have greatness within you. And just that right there alone should be where the bar starts greatness in us? Is it coming out? Are we trying to bring it out? Are we just status quo? Are we trying to bring it down? Are we trying to raise the standard so that others will raise their standard? Or are we just par for the course? Are we the ones that are putting it all on the line so that others can benefit from our talents, our abilities, our greatness? Or are we like the Janis Joplins and we get sidetracked by the negative influences or demons that Destroy us. Sometimes we have to speak out. Speak out against friends, family. Speak out against all different types of people and take that risk because those are the demons in our lives. Those are the things that are distracting us from bringing out our ultimate greatness. Having years and years and years of product that benefits and improves other people. And it could be anything. It could be not just in education or business or music, but it could be anything. You know, are you a alcoholic? Are you drinking too much? And so therefore your life's going to be cut short diet. Are you eating healthy or not? And therefore perhaps maybe your diet might cause you health issues. What about your job? Are you just showing up late? not doing what is required of you, and eventually you lose your job, and that's going to affect people. Or you're striving to do well, to get a raise, maybe to get a promotion, maybe get into management so you can help others in your family, your friends, neighbors. Are you trying to seek an education because getting an education, whether it be a high school equivalency or maybe a AA degree, maybe a bachelor's degree, maybe that's going to help your situation. Maybe it's rough. Maybe it's tough. Maybe it takes some sacrifice, but maybe you decide to do that because you know it's going to be better for others, and so you try. You put it out there on the line so that in the end, people have enjoyed the byproduct of your life. You enjoy the byproduct of your life. The people around you that are just even watching you are enjoying the byproduct of your life. We've talked about it before. You're the type of person that walks into the room. And you bring love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control, positive attributes, or you someone that walks in that's negative, hateful, vengeful, strife, bitterness. When people look at your life, what do they see? Is it something that they want to continue to watch or do they turn it off because it's just way too much? It doesn't impact them positively enough. That's a question that you're going to have to decide. I mentioned earlier that I was posting social media videos of uh, old classic baseball clips: Hank Aaron hitting seven hundred and you know fifteen, breaking uh, Babe Ruth's record of seven hundred fourteen; Ricky Henderson stealing whatever base it was that made him the record holder, um, and all these different clips. You know, George Brett' and his pine tar incident against the Yankees, managers and umpires arguing. So it's been kind of fun. It's had a good response, and it kind of reminds me about. The baseball of my youth I mean I think about just the the players you know you had players like Tony Gwynn Wade Boggs Ozzy Smith uh, like I mentioned George Brett Pete Rose some of these iconic players and they played with a team for years and years and years so you got to follow them on that team not bouncing around the lineups to teams were pretty much the same so if the Dodgers played the Cardinals. In the uh, playoffs, it was usually the same players playing each other. Or if the Dodgers and the Yankees went at it in 77, 78, and 81, it's usually the same players. Nowadays, from year to year, you have entirely different teams. So sometimes it's hard to be fans of baseball because, oh, it's the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's a rivalry. Well, the entire teams are brand new. There's no rivalry anymore, just in name only. And some teams play for the Red Sox and play for the Yankees now and vice versa. But you think back to also like you had, like for the Dodgers growing up in L.A., you had like Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Bill Russell, Ron Say. They were the infield for years. Every year, that was it. And it was fun to follow them. And then you had like in Detroit, it was what, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker at shortstop and second base, that combination, right? And then you think back at the uniforms, the Montreal Expos with that Multicolored hat that they had. The Brewers, they had different uniforms. And their hats were different. Sometimes the front of the hat would be white. Other times it would be yellow. You had like the Phillies in that blue and maroon. The Astros with those stripes around, all those yellow and orange and red kind of stripes going around with the star on it. You had some character. You had some fun. You had this week in baseball on Saturday morning with uh, Mel Allen. Saturday game of the week. Joe Gargiola, maybe Vin Scully, Monday Night Baseball. You had um, stadiums like Riverfront, Three Rivers. You have um, the Astrodome. I remember watching games at the Astrodome. I mean, just all kinds of unique characteristics. You had Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, Candlestick Park, just the names themselves, the vet in Philadelphia. You know, old Comiskey Park, Tiger Stadium, some of these stadiums with years and years of history. And you go outside and play in the backyard or in the street or down the street, the neighbors, or maybe fortunately we had like this big church on the corner, a neighborhood church that had a big yard that we'd play in. Or like growing up in LA again, the Dodgers, Union 76, there was a connection. You could go to Union 76, you pump the gas, and they'd give you baseball cards. Well, the police, you stop them, and they had baseball cards in the community. But I look back at all those videos that I put up on the social media, a lot of great ones. Uh, Roberto Clemente, uh, Bill Mazeroski hitting the game-winning home run in a walk-off to beat the Yankees in the World Series, uh, the George Brett pine tar incident, the ball bouncing off Jose Cansego's head. And it always brings up the discussion, who's the greatest ever? And so... All the great players in all time. To me, I think the best player ever is Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron's a member of the Hall of Fame. He's a 24-time All-Star, which I think makes him an All-Star in every year that he played. He's third in games played. He's played in 3,298 games. He's second in at-bats, fourth in runs, third in hits, Second in home runs behind Barry Bonds, but I think a lot of people consider an asterisk next to Barry Bonds. You can debate that with your buddies. But, uh, again, second officially in home runs. First in RBIs. And get this. He has only an 11% walk rate and an 11% strikeout rate, which means he's up there hitting the ball, putting the ball in play. I think Barry Bonds had like a walk rate of 25% and – uh strikeout rate of even more. He's the only player to rank in the top three in all these categories. So we take a look at it, and he played in Atlanta, in the South, when times weren't that great, better, obviously, than previous times, like when Jackie Robinson came in and broke the color barrier. But again, you take a look at his play and what he did, and the longevity of it all, and the fact that he was up there hitting and performing day in and day out. Got to be the greatest all-time. Some others might be Pete Rose. Pete Rose is up there in some of the hit categories, hits at bats, um, runs, but lacking in the power numbers. I think he's got uh, up there in the doubles. Obviously, Ty Cobb would probably be my third pick. But again, how do you compare Ty Cobb's day to modern-day baseball, is completely different. But again, Ty Cobb, for his time, probably the most dramatic player, best player. Uh, you think of Babe Ruth, again, how do you compare Babe Ruth to today? Well, it's hard to, but his impact on the game has lasted, and that's the thing. Has your impact on the game last? And for Babe Ruth and for Ty Cobb, it has. For Pete Rose and Hank Aaron, it has. And then I think my fifth best player all-time, Albert Pujols. Again, it will take some time for his name to be ingrained in the memories of those iconic legends because he's just retired. But he'll be a Hall of Famer. 700 home runs, only, what, one of four? A lot of great numbers. Played a lot. And so, uh, again, so it would be Hank Aaron, Pete Rose, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Albert Pujols would be my top five if I had to pick. But, again, how do you pick five out of a multitude of of people. I mean, even nondescript people like Carl Skrimsky, Honus Wagner, Harmon Killebrew. It goes on and on and on. But I'll let you decide. What is your favorite? Or who do you think is the all-time greatest baseball player of all time? Is it Hank Aaron? Or is it somebody else? Let me know. Send me an email. TWO Steps Ahead at gmail.com. Or just make a comment on the um, social media. Instagram, TWO Two Steps Ahead Podcast. You can check out our website, RadioWarp.com. That's Radio, W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. You can click the Two Steps Head podcast logo that flies by. Click on that. It brings you to the page. All of our videos from Rumble. Click on the video and play a video of a podcast. Or if you want to listen to the audio portion, there's an orange bar that goes across the middle. That's our SoundCloud. Click on that, and it takes you to the SoundCloud page. You can listen to the audio version. You can actually download the audio versions and take them with you on the go. Or you can just listen anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart, Media Podcast, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts. We're pretty much anywhere and just internet search TWO, Two Steps Head Podcast, and we pop up. And then, of course, hey, Ger- uh, hey Siri, hey, Google, hey, Alexa, play TWO, Two Steps Head Podcast, and our latest episode will pop up. So what are you going to do? Are you going to be somebody that gets out there and gives it your all? Gives it your best so that other people can enjoy the work that you do? Or you can concede to the demons in your life and not give those others that enjoy the work that you do in life, the byproduct of your life. People enjoy it, whether you think it or not. People are going to enjoy the byproduct of your life, no matter what it is could be work people. It could be social people. In your social life, could be family. People enjoy you and like having you around. You can continue to give them that enjoyment, or you can allow the demons that are chasing you to take their joy away as well and keep you from being the best person you can be, from living your fullest life. It's up to you. You need to decide. This is Two Steps Head Podcast, encouraging you to take your passion, Make it happen. Let yourself be great. I'm Son Edom. Hey, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend. And until next time, God bless.